authority. The word itself can be scary, especially if you make it plural. Authorities. (laughs) There appears to be a crisis of authority in our culture today. You see it on the local level. Mandates galore, some we agree with, some we don't. Authority. You see it on a global scale, what's currently happening in the country of Ukraine. It's a crisis of authority. The term authority often gets translated simply as power. Unfortunately, it will then occasionally morph into force. And too often it ends in violence. And so we grow suspicious. We grow wary of authority. Yet it's interesting, at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, the last verse, Jesus is acknowledged as one who is teaching them as one who had what? Authority. And so now Matthew has continued to weave a tapestry of this authoritative Jesus. His purpose, Matthew's purpose, well, you walked right by it this morning when you came into the sanctuary because there's a poster on that back wall in the foyer that speaks of Jesus as king. That's Matthew's purpose. He's presenting Jesus as king, as an authoritative king. He's now begun to illustrate this. It's not just the teaching of Jesus, but he's illustrating it by a succession of stories, starting in the beginning of chapter 8 and now entering into chapter 9, showing various people who correctly identify the authority of Jesus, and then they respond. Some of them respond accordingly, and others not so much. Through his teaching, in other words, what Jesus says, Jesus has turned the perspectives, the expectations, I would even say uh, the interpretations of Scripture upside down in the minds of his hearer. Or we might want to say right side up, right? That's what the Sermon on the Mount was all about, Jesus' teaching. Well, now he's doing the same thing through his actions, what he does. I'd encourage you, whenever reading or studying the Gospels, always be alert to two things. Always be alert, of course, to what Jesus says. That's what the Sermon on the Mount was. A very three chapters long of red letter edition of just Jesus teaching, what what Jesus said, what came out of his lips. But we got to be alert to a second thing, and that is, what does Jesus do in the Gospels? To get a complete picture of who Jesus is in the Gospels, always be alert to what he says, at the same time, watching what he does. So look with me at Matthew chapter 9, the first couple of verses. Getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. I believe that's a reference to Capernaum, not Nazareth where he was raised. Verse 2, and behold... Some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Well, what's going on here? What's the context? What's the backstory to help us better understand the impact of these particular verses we're going to look at today? Well, Jesus has been in the northwest, northeast quadrant of the Sea of Galilee in the region of Gadara or Gadara. 
he's healed uh, two demoniacs there. They've, the demons went into the swine. And remember what happened? The Gadarenes came out, and they basically said, you need to leave, right? He's returned across the top portion of the Sea of Galilee. Now he's, he's in Capernaum. And Capernaum had become kind of a, not a hometown, but it had become a, a base of operations for him. So that's where he's at. That's what's happening. That's what's just happened. He's returned to Capernaum. He's left the Gadarenes because they asked him to leave. Please, please take, take your, your show and, and go on the road. Get out of here. And so now he's back in Capernaum. And it's, it's quite the contrast because now suddenly we have people actually bringing people to Jesus. Whereas the Gadarenes were saying, please leave. Others are bringing people to Jesus here in this passage. Notice in verse 2, there's that phrase again. And behold, we heard that last week in Pastor Scott's message, right? And behold, or surprise, it happens two times in this passage here today. I understand that last week that actually made quite a big impact on a, at least one young person in our audience, the, the surprise aspect. Well, Matthew is trying to get our attention because he's about to say some things that are very, very important. Who are these some people that are identified in, in verse 2? How many of them are there? Where did they come from? Why are they there? Well, fortunately for us, this same event is recorded by two other gospel writers. You can find out a few more details by looking at Mark's account in chapter 2 or Luke's account in chapter 5. I'm not going to preach from those two passages, but we need to be aware of those because it'll help, it'll help us to understand what's really happening here. Matthew's account is the shortest because he's primarily focusing on one issue, and we'll see what that is in just a minute. But Mark indicates that there were four men who brought this paralytic to Jesus. Now, I'm guessing they're probably at least friends. Possibly they're even some family members. And notice what Jesus says here. Jesus saw what? Jesus saw their, the four, their faith. Well, how did he see that? Matthew doesn't give us a clue here. What, what did he observe? Fortunately, Mark and Luke kind of fill in the blanks a little bit because they both reveal to us that these four guys took extreme action to get their friend to Jesus. In, in, in fact, they, they removed the roof to ensure that he had access to Jesus. Faith is first and foremost not simple knowledge about Jesus. We can get plenty of that here. On a Sunday, throughout the week, we get plenty of that here. Podcasts, you name it. But that's not what faith is about. It's not just an accumulation of more knowledge about Jesus, but it's active trust that Jesus is sufficient for one's deepest heartfelt needs. So if an opening to Jesus can't be found. Mark tells us that it, the, the house where he's at is so crowded, even at the door, they can't get in. It's standing room only. That they go up on the roof and they remove whatever obstacles in the way, including the roof, to get their buddy to Jesus. Well, the Gospels preserve several instances of Jesus uh, fulfilling the petition of, an, of one party on behalf of another. We saw that in the first part of chapter 8 of Matthew with the centurion. Jesus reveals himself to the paralytic in this passage today, and he does it because of 
the faith of his friends. Let that sink in. Jesus reveals himself and, we'll see, forgives the sins of this paralytic, but he does it because of the faith, the trust, and the active obedience of his friends bringing him to Jesus. Notice Jesus' response. I just love this response. He says, take heart, my son. And the terminology that Jesus is using there is evoking tenderness, compassion, even his command, take heart. He's, some versions will translate that as be of good cheer, be of great comfort, be of full of courage and confidence. In fact, the, the term refers to a courage, a confidence that is subjectively felt. This isn't just an object of truth that Jesus is pointing out to the paralytic. No, he's saying, I invite you, son, to, to embrace this. It's something to be felt. In other words, in essence, Jesus is saying, my son, there's nothing to fear here. Be encouraged. There's nothing to fear here. Think about that. This paralytic, whether he asked for it or not, we're not told, but he's being lowered down in front of the rest of the city, the rest of the crowd there from around. People who've known him, know his story most likely. He can't talk, he can't move, he's just being lowered down there with all of his needs right in front of everyone. And Jesus directly addresses him and says, my son, there's nothing to fear here. Be filled with good courage. Take heart. He addresses the paralytic at his deepest level, the level of his sins. And that's surprising. I, you didn't see that coming, right? They didn't see that coming. It's like, what? Because the implicit request of this man being lowered is he needs to be healed. He needs to be able to walk again. And Jesus instead starts at this point of his deepest need. I think what, partially what Jesus is doing here is he's saying to this paralytic, look, your friends up there, their faith, that's not a substitute for your faith, for your response. And we'll see that as we walk through the passage. You've got to respond to Jesus. They've responded to me. You've got to respond to me as well. I think that's partially what's going on here. Jesus has compassion on those in need, those in the grip of sin. This, in fact, is his mission, right? Do you remember what the angel said to Joseph when he's in a, a quandary about what to do with Mary? He's engaged to her. She's with child. And the angel says, she's going to bear a son. Yeah, she's going to bear a son. And you're going to call his name Jesus. You're not going to name him after yourself. You're going to call him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. So right there in chapter 1 of Matthew's Gospel, we have this mission statement. This is why Jesus came. And so we see Jesus doing the very thing here in this passage today. Jesus says, your sins have been forgiven. It appears that he's speaking to some specific things that the, the paralytic would be aware of. In fact, they may have been the root cause of his paralysis. Paralysis may have just been a symptom of the sin that he had experienced. You know, the crowd present would have assumed that that was the case. So Jesus' first words point to the priority that's at issue here, the priority that's at stake here, namely spiritual healing over physical healing. The friends would have been satisfied with a physical healing. Jesus 
goes much deeper than that. And then Jesus wonderfully deals with both. He deals with both the spiritual healing and, of course, the physical healing as well. Here's what I think is is the primary point that Matthew is making in this passage. Jesus compassionately displays his authority to forgive sins. Jesus compassionately displays his authority to forgive sins. He doesn't just authoritatively state, hey, I can do what I can do. No, he does it in such a way that he's displaying his his compassion while also forgiving sins. And when he says, son, your sins are forgiven, he literally is saying, your sins have been sent away. That term forgiven means to be sent away. It harkens back to a couple of Old Testament prophets, both Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah says in chapter 38, verse 17, In love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. I just love the imagery of that. God is saying, I've cast your sins. I've sent them away behind my back. And then Jeremiah echoes that in Jeremiah chapter 31 when he's describing this new covenant that that he's going to bring. And he says, I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. I will send them away. Look at verse 3. And behold, there it is again, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Well, this is the first time that we find in Matthew's gospel where Jesus is in direct conflict with religious leaders. It's not going to be the last, unfortunately. Luke's account uh, lets us know as well that not only were scribes there, but so were Pharisees. In fact, Luke says there's Pharisees here from all of Galilee and villages in Judea. In fact, some of them has come as, has come as far away as Jerusalem. And what they're doing is they're, they want to test him. They want to scrutinize him. They want to determine who is this rabbi person that's uh, getting this great following. What's going on here? That's their job, right? And they immediately get it. They understand exactly what Jesus has just implied by what he just said. This is part of their job description, is to figure those things out. But they miss it. They miss the reality of what's happening right before their very eyes. What Jesus is doing is this. He is forgiving sins by his own authority. And you'll notice, without any formal atoning sacrifice being made here, this would have tripped up the scribes and the Pharisees. It would be like, wait a minute, what? There's not a priest present here. We didn't, we didn't sacrifice an animal here. What's going on here? This is what they object to because they get it. They understand that only God can do that. Only God can forgive sins. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. That passage was supposed to be up on the screen and it'd really be good if it could be put up on the screen because I want you to see that. Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Notice he didn't say, because you did this special thing that I told you to do in the law and provide this sacrifice, you killed an animal. No, he says, I'm going to forgive your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. This is what Jesus is claiming. He's claiming divine authority. And they get it. And they accuse him 
a blasphemy. But not realizing that he actually is God in the flesh. Now, we know that looking back. We have the benefit of history. We have the benefit of Scripture, the New Testament. But at the time, they're so locked into their religious view of things that they miss it. God in the flesh is literally standing right there in front of them. And then you know what? He even demonstrates it to them. How? Because God in the flesh is going to tell them what they're thinking. There's more than one miracle going on here. It's fascinating. Whereas the Gadarenes had begged Jesus to leave their region, the scribes, they're right on the precipice here of doing the same thing. They're right on the cusp of rejecting him too. Look at verses 4 and 5. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk. As God, Jesus knew what was in the heart of the paralytic, and he forgave him of that. As God, Jesus knows what's in the mind of the scribes, and he calls them on on it. His first question, in fact, to the scribes, it, it cuts right to the heart of the matter. Why do you think evil in your hearts? The last phrase of Matthew chapter 7, there at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, states that the the scribes did not have the same authority. Jesus taught as one who had authority, which the scribes did not have. Jesus' authority, his power, is greater than the authority of the religious leaders. How do you think they feel about that? (laughs) That threatens them. Jesus has already taught, in the Sermon on the Mount, he taught against the piety of these religious leaders who were content to leave sinners shackled by their sin and in doing so, leaving guys like this paralytic bound to his bed. In Mark's account, chapter 2, verse 7, the scribes ask, who can forgive sins but God alone? In other words, Who has the ability? There's only one person who has the ability, and that is God himself. And so Jesus responds to that with another question. Which is easier to say? Is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to say, rise and walk? And I want you to notice that Matthew records no response from the scribes. Neither does Mark, neither does Luke. The beauty of this, though, is that we know that Jesus can do either of those two things. In fact, he's about to do both. And he does it with divine ease. Because he's God. Because he can. Because he has authority. He is the one who is demonstrating his authority now to forgive sin. The religious leaders taught that disease and sickness were the direct result of sin. They were intertwined. They were inseparable. In fact, the onlookers would assume that Jesus was linking the man's paralysis to some sin when they heard him say, your sins are forgiven. In John chapter 9, verse 2, Jesus' own disciples see a a, a man there blind. He's blind from birth, and they question Jesus. Whose sin is that responsible for, his or his parents? Right? That was part of the culture. That was part of their understandings. They would automatically connect these two. Well, here's the one, Jesus himself, who can take care of both. He can heal diseases, but he can also forgive sin. And in fact, he is going to do both in this case. Well, the obvious 
answer to Jesus' question, which is easier to say, is it's easier to say that sins are forgiven, right? Because it's impossible to know for the bystanders, for the crowd, for everyone present, it's impossible for them to confirm that Jesus did that or, or to refute what's been said. But if he tells a man who's paralyzed to get up and walk, then everybody present is going to be able to see whether or not that happens. Interesting, though, on a deeper level, the second statement, rise and walk, is actually easier. Because any healer can say that, but it takes true deity to actually forgive sins. The beauty of this story is that Jesus does both. It's it's a visual demonstration here, the questions that he's asking. It's a visual demonstration. It's similar to what happened when Jesus cast the demons out of the the two uh, men there at Gadara and sent them into the pigs. Pastor Scott dealt with that last week. We saw the change in those men. But if Jesus had just said, well, demons leave, then those those standing around, the disciples, onlookers, and others, how would they know? How would they actually know if they left or where they went, right? It actually happened. And that same thing is going to happen here. And so... Jesus poses these questions in order to set up this response that he's about to reveal in front of everyone. So look at verses 6 and 7. He says, but that you may know, there's purpose involved here, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he turns. He, he, he's, he's saying that to the scribes, and he turns and now looks at the paralytic and says to him, Rise, pick up your bed, go home. And look at his response. What does he do in verse 7? He does what Jesus tells him to do. He does. He rises and he went home. This verse, uh, these verses show the purpose of this narrative, the central point of this story. Jesus is making a specific truth claim here. He's saying, in other words, I am doing this so that you may know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I have the authority to do what I say, to forgive sins. Uh, Jesus has taught with great authority. He's taught ethically, doctrinally, theologically with wonderful authority in the Sermon on the Mount. But then he's gone on to demonstrate authority over various diseases. In the beginning of chapter 8, in fact, didn't even have to be present. He's at a distance, and he's healing people of diseases. Then Jesus revealed his authority over visible forces of nature. And then he revealed his authority over invisible powers of demons. In this passage, in today's passage, we're seeing, we're witnessing his forgiving, healing, redeeming authority over sin. It's a beautiful progression that Matthew is laying in front of us. And then Spoiler alert, in two weeks, you're going to hear later in this chapter, Jesus is going to demonstrate his authority over death itself. Well, by using the term authority, Jesus declares that he is this son of man, and that he not only has the ability, the power, the ability, but he has the right. He has the jurisdiction to do so. Three weeks ago, Pastor Eric preached on the passage of Scripture earlier in this chapter where Jesus uses the phrase Son of Man again. In fact, it's used 
80 times by Jesus in the four Gospels to refer to himself as this authoritative one. It comes out of Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man, one like a Son of Man, comes to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and is presented before him and is given dominion and glory and an eternal kingdom. That's what Jesus is claiming. And he's using terminology to drive that point home, even as as he illustrates that authority before their very eyes. Well, who does this? Is Jesus just another prophet? He's way more than a prophet. (laughs) Is he just a good teacher? you got friends who have said that. Oh, yeah, Jesus, he's a good teacher, really a good teacher. He's right up there with others, right? Muhammad, Buddha, whatever. No. He's... (laughs) He supersedes all of them. He's more than just a good teacher. Only God has the authority to say and to do what Jesus is now doing. And then look again at verse 7. The response of this paralytic is precious. It's immediate. He doesn't say anything here in Matthew's account. He just obeys. He just does what Jesus told him to do. Now, just for a second, we got to talk about this. Can you imagine the trip home? Think about it. I'm guessing the, the crowd is like, it, we're going to find out. They're like, they're like awestruck. They're like backing up, and he's rolling up his mat, and he's heading toward the door, and there's like a clear path now, right? <laughs> he's headed for exit stage left, and his buddies on the roof are like, hey, wait, wait, what happened? You know, and they're like ambling or running or jumping down the external staircase to get to him. I can just see them running, the five of them, jumping up and down, high five. And I told you that would work. You didn't believe me. You know, and so forth and so on. Just the, this is delight as they themselves understand that trust in Jesus has brought this great result. Let's look at the crowd's, result, the, the crowd's response, though, in verse 8. When the crowd saw it, They were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Hmm, That last phrase really kind of surprises us as well. It's like, wait, what? Do they not really see what's going on here? Well, it's interesting, because throughout the four Gospels, crowds are presented in such a way that they form the audiences for Jesus' teaching, and they're the object of his compassion, but the Gospels don't record crowds turning to Jesus in repentance and belief. They don't. What do they record? Individuals. Individuals maybe stepping out of the crowd, individuals being pulled out of the crowd in this case. Think of the woman with the issue of blood. She's in a crowd, but she individually reaches out and touches the hem of Jesus' garment. It's it's a fascinating contrast here. In fact, crowds are most often uh, presented in the Gospels as that which obstructs access to Jesus. In the Gospels, crowds tend to get in the way of actually having an encounter with Jesus. So notice their response. They're afraid, Matthew says. Mark says they're amazed. Luke says they're awestruck. Well, these are better responses than the Gadarenes, right, who said, hey, get out of here. We don't want you. Certainly better than the scribes who are about to reject him. But I'm, I'm left to ponder, is it enough? Are there, is, is what's happening with the crowd, is it enough? It's great to glorify God, and they should, because 
and to be afraid. Because in fact, fear, fear is the, the appropriate response, right? If you see an, an activity, an action of God, then fear, fear should be there. And fear breeds praise, actually. But I'm left to ponder, did they really get it? Have they truly grasped who Jesus really is? Mark says that the crowd said, we've never seen anything like this. That sounds like something we might say as part of a crowd. Or Luke writes, we've seen extraordinary things today. You know, isn't it great? Time will tell as we work our way through Matthew. Time will tell how the crowds, in fact, do respond to Jesus. But I want to go back and I want to restate this, this really key idea for this passage, and that is Jesus compassionately displays his authority to forgive sins. That's what's going on here in these eight verses. Well, that begs a question, right? That begs the question, well, so now what? It begs the question, how will we respond to that? What, is, what difference does that mean and make for us? I have shared this illustration at least once, maybe twice since I, in the four and a half years we've been here, but I want to share it again because it's so appropriate. Well, living in Mississippi for nine years, Deb and I um, were active in living in and, and ministering to the African-American community, mostly impoverished communities. And I became good friends with Reverend Carl Brown, who pastored a church up on the Delta, uh, pretty close to Memphis, actually, very poor area of uh, northwest Mississippi. In fact, he had me come up there once when our oldest daughter, Alicia, was, was just a toddler. We got to go up there, and he had me, had me preach. Uh, I found out after the fact, I'm glad I didn't know ahead of time, that I was the first white guy to ever stand in that 100-year-old pulpit. And so we had a wonderful relationship. But I tell you, when, when Reverend Carl Brown would preach, he'd get to this point in the message where he would want to make sure that we understood what it was being said. He'd want to make some application, make it practical for people. And he'd lean over the pulpit, he'd grab the pulpit, he'd lean over it, and he'd look at the audience and he'd say, let me put the cookies on the lower shelf. Well, that's what I want to do. Let me put these cookies on the lower shelf. And I, I think the best way to do that is to ask the question, with whom do we identify the most? In this story, who do we identify the most? Is, do, we, do we identify with the crowds? Are we awestruck? Are we fearful, but still not fully grasping who Jesus really is? There's nothing wrong with that, but it's not enough. They're, they were enthusiastic for Jesus. They were even close in proximity to him, right here. But enthusiasm and, and proximity for Jesus are not the same as faith and trust in Jesus. We can't just stay in the crowd. We need to step out of the crowd and trust and put our faith in him. Or do we, do we identify with the scribes? I hope no one does, right? These argumentative, threatened religious leaders. They're so attached to their religious worldview that ultimately we find them rejecting Jesus. In fact, they're going to crucify Jesus on a charge of blasphemy. And this is where it started. The, the scribes, interesting though, they're, they're no less dependent on Jesus than the paralytic is for the, a work of God in their lives. But you know what? They're learning their status probably make them less aware of their need for it. Well, how about the four friends? 
For those of you who profess allegiance to Jesus, then this is coming at you. I hope we're like the four friends, trusting in Jesus enough to go to great measures to get a friend to Jesus. For those of you that are participating in the Kingdom Initiative, you got a text this morning at 8 o'clock, and in that text, it said to read this passage and then to pray that God would reveal one friend, just one, whom you can lead to Jesus. we got to be like these four friends. we got to do more than just observe, like, like the crowd, standing and observing what's going on. We've got to trust in Jesus enough to take action to lead others to Him. Or maybe... And I don't know the condition of everyone's heart in here, but maybe you're sitting here like the paralytic. Maybe you walked in here needing your sins forgiven. I don't know. God knows that. You know that. I want to invite you to respond like the paralytic. He, he embraced what Jesus told him to do. And in doing so, he's revealing that he's trusting in Jesus as well. He immediately, he immediately obeys what Jesus told him to do. So I want to urge you this morning, I want to urge you with everything I can urge you with, is to accept his forgiveness and then submit to his authority. Obey his words and then bring others to Jesus. It's really pretty simple. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the simplicity, even the brevity, of this message. It's clear. It's right there. Thank you for communicating this story to us in such a way that we can relate to it, in such a way that it makes sense. Father, you know the condition of our hearts. You know the thinking of our minds. You know where we are at right now. And Lord, if there's someone here... Uh, under the sound of my voice, who is in the crowd but not yet stepping out to embrace you in faith and trust. And Lord, I pray that it would happen today. For those of us that have called you Lord and Savior for any length of time in our lives, I pray that we would be so moved by this message, so encouraged by this message, by the truth of your word, that we would bring others in need of your forgiveness, that we would bring them to you. Lord, do this work. We, we can't do it ourselves. We need the power of your Holy Spirit to empower us, enable us to do that. But do this work through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what better Sunday, right? What better message than to cap it with a visual, visible demonstration of our commitment to Jesus? So we're going to celebrate communion. And after um, a couple weeks of lobbying for this, um, we're going to do it like sort of like we used to do it. We're going to still use prepackaged elements, but instead of picking it up on your way in this morning, they're up front here. So in just a minute, when the music is played, I'm going to invite you to come down the center aisle, take the elements, go back the outside aisles to your seats, and, uh, and then wait. I'll come back up and lead us because we'll, we'll take communion together. But I, I want to remind all of us, this is not the table of New Life Church. This is the Lord's table. It's not exclusively for those who have membership here at this place. However, it is exclusively for those who profess allegiance to King Jesus, right? Who trust in His grace for our salvation. So 
If you follow Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, then please join us. You are welcome at this table. But if you're not, if you're still in the crowd, still kind of scoping things out, not quite sure, not quite certain who is this Jesus, then I'd, I'd urge you to stay seated. Seriously. And think about that and pray about that and ask God to reveal himself more clearly to you. Father, take this opportunity to visually demonstrate your love, your grace, your mercy for us on our behalf. Amen.